Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of John, chapter 19, starting in verse 31. The Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath, Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other man who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately there came out blood and water. And he who has seen has borne witness, and his witness is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not a bone of him will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him, him whom they pierced. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. He came, therefore, and took away his body. And Nicodemus came also, who had first come to him by night, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the, with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, on account of the Jewish day of preparation, because the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Well, the question that's regularly, that regularly confronts the homeowner, others as well, but the homeowner is, do you DIY or do you call a guy? What about you? Do you DIY through... My wife and my uh, time as homeowners, we have confronted this question quite a bit. We've fixed leaky toilets, uh, we've put in shelves, we've built tables, and to be honest, Rachel, my wife, is really the brains and the skill behind all of these things. I'm the, I'm the unskilled labor, labor coming to the table. We've done oil changes, fixed automotive problems, garage door problems, all kinds of things throughout the years. I'm sure that many of you have as well. And when you're confronted with this question, you have to, you have to ask some other questions. There, there are other uh, issues that are involved in whether you do it yourself or, or whether you call somebody to come and fix it for you. One, time. Do I have the time to invest to put aside where I can do it myself? Of course, a big question too is money. Uh, is it going to save me a lot of money? If not, maybe I just hire somebody to do it for me. And then, of course, the biggest question of all is, do I have the ability to do it? Can I actually get it done? I remember one DIY project in particular that I really messed up. My windshield in my car was leaking from the top. And so I started Googling, searching on YouTube. Oh, I can do this. I just take out my windshield, <laughs> uh, I seal it up really well, and then I put it back. And of course, I uh, set aside the time, I thought I would save myself some, some money, and I end up 
shattering my windshield. <laughs> it was not a good decision because I did not have the ability. I could not DIY in that particular case. Looking back on it, I think I could do it now if I, <laughs> if I went back and tried again. But we often take this same approach to our own spiritual lives. We treat our spiritual lives as a DIY project. You did this before you were a Christian. Seeking in some ways to gain a right standing before God. To reconcile yourself to God. To be good, to be better, to be morally upright and righteous. And even now, brothers and sisters... We, we have this same pull towards trying to do it ourselves. If we could somehow become a better person, if we could somehow polish up our righteousness so that other people would see how good we are, maybe God will see it as well. Well, I'm here to remind you of the truth because we need to be reminded of this daily and weekly. You need to be reminded you are saved by grace alone. Any spiritual life that you have is only by the grace of God. You can't do it yourself. No matter how, many, how much time you had, if you had all the time in the world to work up a certain righteousness that was good enough before God, you would never measure up. You would not have the ability to do it. You would not have the merit to do it. Our forgiveness comes through another, not through your own works not through your own sorrow or penitence over your sin. Our forgiveness comes on the basis of the work of another, the merit of this one, Jesus Christ, who was lifted up to die for us. The author in our passage this morning wants us to see the truth of Jesus' sacrifice and his cleansing through his death so that we might be brought again to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, the author is calling you to faith in Jesus. I'm calling you to faith in Jesus. Despair of your own works and cling to Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins. And brothers and sisters, despair once again of any, any idea that you could do it yourself. And cling to Christ who is the perfect sacrifice for sins. The author, as we look at this passage, not only wants us to believe our faith to be bolstered in Christ, but he also aims that we may lay aside every idol, every sin, and every, everything that hinders our faith in living for God's glory. There are two main scenes in this passage that we're taking today. And the first one has to do with this truth-telling eyewitness which is for the sake of your faith. You see that in verses 31 to 37. It's the day of preparation, and so the Jewish leaders ask Pilate that the legs of these, uh, these crucified might be broken to hasten their death, to make them die more quickly, so that they wouldn't remain there on the Sabbath day. We're told that when they came to Jesus, however, they saw he was already dead and they did not break his legs. The author emphasizes in this paragraph the truthfulness of the eyewitness account about these things. 
particularly of Jesus' bones not being broken and the piercing of Jesus' side. He remarks, these things took place so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. We've seen that in previous chapters and paragraphs as well. The emphasis that the author is making on this, this being a part of the plan of God and fulfillment of the scriptures. It took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Notice, though, the, the scrupulous uh, desire on the part of the Jewish leaders to, to scrupulously follow the law in all things, to not offend the law in these things, really in these minor details, when all along they, are, they have just killed an innocent man, a man who is perfectly righteous. I say that as just an aside, that we might also consider in our own minds how we Uh, we might scrupulously attend to details of morality and of law-keeping when neglecting weightier matters of mercy and justice. Let us not be like the Jewish leaders in this regard. The the, uh, the author emphasizes this testimony of the truth-telling eyewitness. And it's intended to have a bolstering effect on the faith of those who read or hear this account. You see this in verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth. He's he's piling up phrases that we might understand the truth of this eyewitness testimony. And then he says, that you also may believe. The author uses eyewitness testimony. Perhaps, probably, this, this beloved disciple mentioned elsewhere throughout the gospel, this unnamed disciple who was close and faithful to Jesus, uses this testimony to call the reader and the hearer to faith in Jesus. This is a particular emphasis here, this testimony to bring faith to those who hear and read. And you can know in, in your own experience how an eyewitness testimony bolsters your belief of a particular incident or action. I saw it with my own eyes. I know what I'm talking about. Recently, a scandal in the Major League Baseball has been revealed. The Houston Astros were found to have been cheating, breaking the rules. To make it simple for those of you who aren't baseball fans, they were doing something illegal to gain an advantage. And it it seems like it was pretty widespread, at least in 2017 and a lot of baseball players have really piled on the Astros for this but one former player Carlos Correa has a different account at least for a few of the players Jose Altuve uh, Kemp was another player that he mentioned and in his testimony he's saying these precise things he says I was there I saw it with my own eyes that these few guys rejected any attempts at cheating you can believe me because I was there and I saw it with my own eyes. Others can validate it. And here we have the same sort of example. We have an eyewitness testifying to what he saw when Jesus died on the cross. Now, it might be hard for us to validate it here and now that that took place. And yet at the time of this writing, there would be others who could verify this or doubt it or falsify the claims. And yet we have this eyewitness seeking to bolster the faith of those who read and hear this account. Now, faith is a gift from God. We know that from the scriptures, from even Ephesians, where we are saved by grace 
through faith, and even this faith of ours, it's a gift from God. It's not by works. You didn't come to faith on your own. It didn't well up inside you by your own strength or ability, not because you were more intelligent than others or you saw something others didn't see. It is a gift from God if you have faith. And yet, we are also taught in the Scriptures that God uses means to bring about, to establish faith in the hearts of His people. And the emphasis here is on the means that God is using to give people faith. And it is, in this case, the, the written word of God producing faith in those who read and hear it. God uses the means of the spoken word, the written word of God to produce faith in the hearts of those who hear. This is something we should remember and keep in consideration particularly when we're trying to share the gospel with someone when we desire someone else to know jesus how are they going to come to faith are they going to come to faith if we have enough uh, apologetic uh, reasoning with them if can we somehow reason someone into faith in jesus christ well no it comes through the spoken word the communicated word of christ of the gospel Jesus died on the cross for sinners. Speaking of the work of Christ in particular for sinners. Come to faith in Him. In your evangelism, you don't have to know all the answers. You don't have to know every answer to every question they, someone might ask inquiring about who Christ is and, and about how the faith makes sense. You can be courageous and confident in speaking the word of God that he will use that to create faith in the hearer you can be confident in your own lives and in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ you want to know how to build each other up as we often talk about how do you love one another in the body of Christ be eager to speak the word let it reverberate throughout our church family let it reverberate throughout your home speaking the word of god to one another to build each other up send a text make a phone call send an email that you might encourage one another and in that may the lord use it to to spark greater faith in him in particular the it appears like the author is speaking about his eyewitness testimony to certain things. It's not only about the death of Jesus Christ, but in particular, it, it appears to me he is speaking about these, uh, verse 34, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And then comes this emphasis on the eyewitness testimony. And so as you consider what the author's intending here with blood and water, a few references come to my mind, and they have come to the minds of commentators throughout the ages. John 7, 38 and 39, where Jesus speaks of rivers of living water springing up and, and flowing out to others. And John, the author, says in parentheses, now he was talking about the Spirit here. Also comes to mind is Numbers 20, verse 11, where Moses strikes the rock and water pours out from the rock. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, we're told, and the rock was Christ. So some think, and I, I think they're on to something, I'm not quite sure, that 
John, the author, is speaking of the future pouring out of the Spirit through Jesus Christ. Pouring out rivers of life-giving water, the Spirit. John Calvin, who's not prone to wild symbolism or uh, allegorical readings of Scripture, says this, By these words, he means that Christ brought the true atonement and the true washing. These were prefigured in the law by those two symbols, sacrifices and washings. In sacrifices, blood atoned for sins and was the ransom for appeasing the wrath of God. Washings were the token of true holiness and the remedies for taking away uncleanness and removing the pollutions of the flesh. So as we look at John's testimony, we do recognize something of a symbolic nature, especially as we look at the verse after this eyewitness testimony. Verse 36. He clues us in on what he's wanting to pay, us to pay attention to in this eyewitness testimony. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. And what Scripture does he point to? What events that were just witnessed are prophesied already in Scripture? Not one of his bones will be broken. And, again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. There are a few ideas of where the author is quoting from this passage, not one of his bones will be broken. One, uh, one possibility is Psalm thirty-four twenty-one: The afflictions of the righteous are many, but the Lord rescues him from all of them. Not one of his bones will be broken. Jesus then would be pictured as the righteous one in the midst of affliction, whom God, even though he dies, will still in some way in some sense rescue this one although we could also consider this is the righteous one who was not rescued so that we might be rescued by his righteousness another possibility is from exodus twelve forty six and numbers nine twelve. which this this would make sense in the context of all of the passion narrative of jesus taking place during passover Exodus 12:46 speaks of the paschal lamb whose legs who not a not a bone should be broken in this this offering remember the passover lamb who was slaughtered a pure and spotless lamb whose blood would be smeared over the doorway so that the angel of death would pass by and not kill the firstborn inside Jesus then is the Passover lamb who was sacrificed for the atonement of sins. See, if you think you can do it yourself in your own spirituality, if you think that you uh, can appease the wrath of God by your own righteousness, you're doing one of two things. You're either underestimating the seriousness of the problem. You think your sin's not that big of a deal before a holy God, and so it just takes a little bit of effort to make up for it. Or you are overestimating your own righteousness. You do not have what it takes. You need one to be slaughtered in your place for his blood to count for you. And this is what Jesus, the Passover lamb, did for us. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was slaughtered. An innocent lamb crucified. His blood poured out 
This is how serious your sin against God was. It required nothing less than the death of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Not one of his bones was broken. They will look on him whom they have pierced. And this seems more clear to be coming from the book of Zechariah, chapter 12, verse 10. Turn back to Zechariah 12 in your Bibles. If you have a digital Bible, you can find it pretty easily. If you have a physical Bible, just flip back to Matthew and then Malachi before that, and then Zechariah is the very next book. Zechariah chapter 12. (coughs) And John has used Zechariah, passages from Zechariah, repeatedly throughout his gospel account. In John chapter 10, he referenced Zechariah 11, and this shepherd who would be gathering his sheep from the nations. In John chapter 12, verse 15, have this king riding on a donkey from uh, uh, an allusion to Zechariah 9.9, this humble international king. In John 16.32 and Zechariah 13.7, you have this shepherd whose sheep would be scattered, running away. The shepherd struck and the sheep scattering. And in Zechariah 12, 10, you have this one who is pierced. Look at the passage beginning in verse 7. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, who is the me there? It is Yahweh, it is the Lord. So that when they look on me, on whom they have On him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Throughout the book of John, we have seen the claims of the authors and the claims of Jesus himself to be the one true God, to be truly divine. And here he does it again. This is this one hanging on a cross who was crucified, who dead who died, is the Lord of glory. He is the one who has been pierced. And this vision from Zechariah is concerning the messianic age, the parousia, the the end times, the age of the Messiah. Here we see the shepherd king, the Lord of glory, who is pierced. The shepherd has been struck and the sheep are scattering. Notice also as you continue down through chapter 12 to chapter 13, verse 1 and following. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin 
and uncleanness. He goes on talking about clearing away all the idols from the land of his people. Here, looking on those whom they have pierced seems to be speaking in particular of the Jewish leaders of Judah and Jerusalem. So some have taken this as a, an indication that in the last days there will be a mass turning of Israel to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, that may be true, but I think there's a, a dual emphasis, both of, uh, both of mercy in allowing them to come back to him with compassion and yet also judgment. There's this dual emphasis of judgment. Judgment for some, salvation to others. But it also signifies a judgment which is really already taking place. This is the the messianic age. This is the age of the Messiah. And already in the, the preaching of the word, in the preaching of this lamb who was crucified, in the preaching of this one who was pierced from whom blood and water flowed out, there is a judgment already taking place. There is a division already taking place between those who receive it with faith and those who reject it in unbelief. And which side of the line, brothers and sisters, friends, which side of the line are you on? Receive him. Come to him in faith. This scene is designed to create within you a faith which clings to Jesus and says, I need you to save me. I need you for forgiveness, for righteousness to be right with God. The next scene, this second paragraph, concerns bringing that faith out into the open. So this first scene concerns is designed to give you faith in the Lamb of God and the shepherd king who was pierced. And this next scene concerns bringing your faith out into the open. We are told of two men in particular, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And they are both described as secret disciples of Jesus. See that Joseph is explicitly called a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jews. Nicodemus is portrayed as a secret disciple as the author reminds us that this is the one who came to Jesus earlier at night. So we can, we can infer there. He came to Jesus at night seeking to remain hidden, seeking to keep his, his cards close to his vest, as we might say. And we can all do this in different ways. This might be um, you holding certain views that you have close to yourself and not letting them be revealed because of some fear that uh, someone might judge you or someone might, uh, might mock you or ridicule you for your beliefs. Maybe we should do this a little more with our political views. <laughs> if, we can't, if we can't say something good, don't say anything at all. But here there's a more particular danger involved in their discipleship as we, we have seen. Uh, Peter is afraid. All the disciples are scattering because of their fear for the Jews. They just crucified their master. Of course you're going to be afraid. And yet here, these two men play important roles in the preparation and burial of Jesus' body. Roles which put their secret, uh, their, their status as secret disciples in jeopardy. Roles that probably put them in danger from those Jewish leaders who just killed Jesus. Joseph asks Pilate for the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus brings 
an insane amount of myrrh and aloes to, to care for the body of Jesus. And what was it that kept them secret disciples? What was it that kept them from, from coming out and making it known explicitly, I am a follower of Jesus? We're told explicitly for jo- Joseph that it was his fear of the Jews. His fear of being known as a disciple. His fear for his own life, for his own safety, for his own reputation. Perhaps it may have also been his wealth. He was known as a wealthy man, as it seems Nicodemus was, as he brings this wealth of myrrh and aloes. Perhaps they weren't willing to lay down these things in order to become well-known, explicit disciples of Jesus. Listen once again to what Calvin says on this passage. So great was the efficacy, effectiveness of that sweet savor which the death of Christ conveyed to the minds of those two men that it quickly extinguished all the passions belonging to the flesh. So long as ambition and the love of money reigned in them, the grace of Christ had no charms for them, but now they begin to disrelish the whole world. I love that word that he uses there. They begin to disrelish the whole world. And I would ask, what is it that you relish that keeps you from more fully identifying as a follower of Jesus Christ? What is it that is so valuable to you that it keeps you from following Jesus? Is it your reputation? Your popularity? You want to be well-known? You want to be well-liked by others? And for some of you in particular cases, if you were to be known as... A, a radical follower of Jesus, a, a, a real disciple of Jesus, some of your friends at school would disown you or turn a cold shoulder to you or not acknowledge you anymore. And that is really valuable to you. And you want that so bad. And that is keeping you from following Jesus. Maybe that's the case for you as well. If you're an adult. Is it your certain possessions that you have that, you, that are so valuable to you? Your pride? What is it which keeps you from being consistent in your discipleship to Christ? Some sin that you're hanging on to that you, you relish it. And all these things we are called to lay down these idols because they are nothing in comparison to the worth of Jesus Christ, who is crucified for sinners. Hear this from the words of the song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, Demands my soul, my life, my all. 
And what you will find when, when you come to that realization is that it will not be a loss at all. It will only be gain. Let's pray together.